0: Because um, we've been in this series uh, that we're just simply calling Justice, and, it, and the real goal of the series is to try to get a handle on what does God's justice look like, what is the biblical vision of justice, and uh, in the first week what we learned is we learned that there's a real difference between retributive justice and restorative justice, uh, and that the Hebrew word that we translate to the English uh, um, justice is the Hebrew word mishpat, And overwhelmingly, the scripture, every time that it's referring to mishpat, it it refers to a restorative justice. Uh, And so we've kind of leaned into that, we've been exploring what that means, but but really recognizing that the biblical vision of justice uh, is one of restorative justice. We also learned that the foundation of justice is recognizing and honoring the image of God in each person. Uh, that we are doing justice when we look at someone and despite all the things that might separate us or all the ways that they are different from us, we honor the image of God that is in them, and that's doing justice. And and robbing them of that image or ignoring that image or pushing that image aside is doing injustice, Uh, and that's kind of a biblical foundation. What we learned last week then is we explored how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Uh, And we looked at that through the lens of justice and saw that the ministry of Jesus was actually a ministry of justice, that with his teachings about how we treat the vulnerable of society, his actions, his miracle, uh, they are all bringing things back to upright, and that's really what justice or mishpat is. It has, it's referring to something that is straight or a plumb line or uprightness. And so all throughout the teachings and ministry of Jesus, what Jesus is doing is he's going and he's making things back upright, Uh, So it was all about justice, and we concluded last week by recognizing that in Christ on the cross, love and justice meet, that God's justice over evil is carried out by way of love. And therefore, as recipients of God's restorative justice, we are to go and seek justice for others. Uh, And so today what I wanna talk about is, I want to explore the relationship between justice and forgiveness, justice and forgiveness. Uh, But before we do that, I want to say a word of prayer. Uh, And as we pray today, a member of our congregation brought uh, to my attention that today is Narcotics Anonymous Worldwide Unity Day. And if we understand justice to be about restoration and healing, then we know that God is deeply concerned about justice for those who are struggling with addiction. Uh, And so in solidarity with those suffering from addiction themselves, or in solidarity with those whose lives are affected by someone who may be addicted, uh, we want to uh, say a prayer that begins with the serenity prayer. So I invite you to, to pray with me. O oh God, our heavenly Father, grant us the serenity of mind to accept that which we cannot, cannot be changed, courage to change that which we can, be cha- can change, and wisdom to know the one from the other. God, today... Um, as we approach this message and as we turn our minds to Your Word and and to the theme of justice. uh, God, we, um, our minds turn to those who are on the margins of society, who are most vulnerable, um, and God, specifically today, those who may be suffering and struggling with addiction. And We pray, God, that for all of these folks, there would be mishpat that there would be justice, there would be an uprightness brought back to their lives. And God, we pray that as a people of God uh, that You would use us. Uh, Even even if we ourselves are in need of justice, which certainly we all are, then God, I pray that You would also use us. Uh, and, And So I suppose, Lord, our prayer is that You would work in us and that You would work through us as Your people. And God, open our hearts and minds now as we open up your word give us not just understanding that, that lives in our head, but give us uh, understanding that, that catches our imaginations, that, that moves us, moves our emotions, that captures our hearts. Um, so Lord, be with us in these moments as we open up your word together, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, justice and forgiveness. Um, I suppose if justice and forgiveness both uh, had a Facebook page, uh, their relationship status would say, it's complicated. (laughs) Uh, That is to say that uh, justice uh, and feels, particularly retributive justice, justice feels a lot like power, uh, strength, uh, where forgiveness can often feel like weakness, uh, and so the relationship between justice and forgiveness is actually a long-standing one that theologians have been arguing uh, about forever because it's just like, how, can you have one with the other? Or are you giving up one if you participate in the other? It's that, like, oftentimes we feel that if we follow Christ's command to forgive, then we are giving up on justice, right? You ever felt like that? Have you been wronged? and you're trying to lean into God's command to forgive those, but it really feels like that if you forgive them, then you're just kind of letting go of justice. Um, or if we seek justice, then can we do so without foregoing forgiveness? Do we make do we have to make a choice between one or the other? Are justice and forgiveness mutually exclusive? These are, these are important questions that we need to deal with, that theologians and philosophers have, have been dealing with for a long, long time. In fact, philosopher Nietzsche argued that forgiveness is simply a way for the weak to manipulate the powerful. That was the conclusion that he came to. Forgiveness is a way for those who are weak to manipulate those who have more power. And ultimately what he said is, any system of belief that insists on forgiveness is fundamentally a weak system. And, and I suppose uh, maybe you've never heard that, maybe you don't know who Nietzsche is, and maybe you're like, now you've caused me to ask a question I've never asked. But uh, the, the question is, is he right? Is he right? Yeah, that's right. Spoiler alert. Spoiler <laughs> alert. And actually, to help us make sense of this, I I want to actually ask maybe a more compelling question, and the question is this, uh, who displays the greatest power on Good Friday? That's the question I want to work with and deal with this morning. Who displays the greatest power on Good Friday? Was it Caiaphas and Pilate? Uh, Was it the crowd? Or was it Jesus? And to help us explore this, I'm I'm going to uh, read a number of passages of Scripture because I want us to kind of get a, a sense of the whole narrative of Good Friday. I'll be reading uh, selections from Matthew and also Luke. Uh, and then after I read them all, it's our tradition here for me to say, this is the word of God for the people of God in which I re- invite your response, thanks be to God. Uh, and so let's begin in Matthew uh, chapter 26, uh, beginning with verse 57. Matthew 26, beginning with verse 57, it says, says this. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Jesus followed him at a, But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and he sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though, though many false witnesses had come forward. Finally two came and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? For look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all answered, he is worthy of death. Then they spit on his face. They struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ, Who hit you? Then going over to Matthew, chapter 27, beginning with verse 11, says this. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, that is Pilate. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. And when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony that they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one of you do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. And for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. So which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they shouted. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Christ, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that Instead, an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Now all the people answered, Let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now let's look at Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed when they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We're asking the question Who is it that displayed power on Good Friday? Was it Caiaphas and Pilate? You know, after his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was brought before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin Now, the Sanhedrin uh, was the Jewish court system and also the supreme uh, religious body in the land of Israel. That is to say that if you were an Israelite with a dispute that you couldn't resolve, the Sanhedrin is where you would go. They were the court, but I want you to know and realize they were also the highest supreme religious leaders. Now, the Sanhedrin, in order to convict someone, needed two witnesses to bring a charge against the accused. And so they were looking uh, to charge Jesus, but everyone who, had come up, uh, to, everyone who had come forward so far was not a credible witness until two came forward with the charge that Jesus had said, I will tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And they count this as a credible witness because only the Messiah would have authority to make such a claim regarding the temple. And certainly false messiahs would not be tolerated, and so they needed to determine for sure if Jesus was in fact uh, the messiah or not, but you kind of realize that they had uh, a bias, they had conclusion bias, that is to say that they had already made up their mind that Jesus was not. And so these words of Jesus, this claim against him that he will uh, tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, that is what they count as credible witness against this one But the other question that that sticks out to me is the text makes very clear that they were actually looking for witnesses against Jesus in order to put Him to death, right? Talk about conclusion bias. (laughs) Uh, They already knew what they wanted to do. Uh, And and so the the question is, why were the religious leaders of the day so bothered by Jesus that they were trying to find accusations against Him? Well, it's because that Jesus was going around reinterpreting the Old Testament law in new and surprising ways, right? Uh, There's little footnotes in your Bible that sometimes when Jesus uh, says something, there's a little footnote there, and the footnote will point you to in the Old Testament where Jesus is pulling that from. And if you read carefully, there's oftentimes where Jesus uh, very slightly, sometimes very carefully, will actually reinterpret the Old Testament law. Uh, And, of course, this made the religious leaders furious about what he was doing. And so, so of course, they become frustrated. Jesus is reinterpreting the Old Testament law in new and surprising ways. Jesus is making a competing claim of kingship that is going against Caesar. Jesus is being charged with heresy by claiming to be the Messiah. I mean, there's all sorts of things that Jesus is doing that are riling up the crowd, in particular, the religious leaders. Uh, And I say all of that to say this. In other words, Jesus didn't die because he was so nice to everyone and telling them a prayer that would ensure that they go to heaven when they die. Are you with me? In other words, Jesus had some ideas about how the world ought to run, and those ideas flew right in the face of the religious leaders and right in the face of the Roman Empire, and it drove them crazy. Right? Uh, sometimes uh, in church we say, let's just keep things spiritual. What we mean is, let's just keep things really personal and only about my personal salvation, and let's not talk about of any Jesus's, of Jesus' ideas about how to live our lives, right? Because <laughs> that's when you get into trouble. And so they were worked up. Um, Jesus was offending the religious leaders, flying in the face of empire, and so when these two witnesses are found, they, uh, here's what would happen. Uh, the, the standard process was to then question both the accused and the accusers uh, before making a judgment. So the Sanhedrin would ask questions of those who are accusing, ask questions of those the one who is accused, and then they would make their judgment. Uh, so, of course, we get the demand then after these two witnesses, the demand for Christ, tell us if you are, in fact, the Son of God. Jesus says as much, and the court decides that he deserves death. Uh, this is the first wrinkle in the story. Um, here's this group uh, that is just committed to putting Jesus to death, uh, but all of this is happening. Our best guess is all of this is happening in AD 33, and the Sanhedrin lost the authority uh, to dole out capital punishment in AD 30. So all of this is ha- so they're like put Jesus to death, and they find him guilty. But guess what? The Sanhedrin has no authority to actually put him to death. That's why they give him to Pilate. Okay, so that was an aha moment for me. And all of you just responded like just with quiet. Oh, yes, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, so anyway, so there's a wrinkle in the story, right? I mean, this is like a big deal. Uh, so, So once he's handed over to Pilate, then Jesus is quickly exonerated, right? Or so it seems. Pilate is quick to say, I see no reason for this man's death, but the crowd is insistent. The angst of the crowd threatened Pilate's power because if Pilate wasn't able to keep the peace, then he wasn't gonna be able to keep his job. And so Pilate, playing to the crowd, Uh, says, okay, I'll give you a choice. Is it Barabbas or Jesus? They chose to release Barabbas. And so what what you have happened on Good Friday is Caiaphas and Pilate put their power on display by eliminating an enemy of the state, that is Christ. And in so doing, they were carrying out justice. They were carrying out what they believed to be justice. They were demonstrating the representative strength of the Roman Empire, which is the strength to kill. So some would say this is the greatest strength of all. In fact, the Gospel of Luke does something really interesting. It makes sure to tell us that before this day, Caiaphas and Pilate were enemies. But Pilate and Caiaphas were made friends because they now shared a common enemy in Christ. And the Gospel of Luke says that explicitly. Right? And so these two, these two enemies, but both working for the state, or in collusion with the state, are then working together pouring out their anger, their angst, their frustration on on Jesus. In other words, when the peace of Rome is threatened, Rome does the only thing that Rome knows how to do, which is put to death the threat of the peace. The only justice Rome knew was retributive justice. And so Jesus was killed through the representative power of Rome that is portrayed through Caiaphas and Pilate. Does this make sense? So was it the strength of Caiaphas and Pilate in collusion with one another? Or was strength on Good Friday really displayed in the crowd? Uh, Did the crowd display strength? And here's what the crowd is doing on Good Friday. The crowd on Good Friday is scapegoating. You ever heard of this? Scapegoating is the practice of directing our own anger, our own frustration or guilt and, and portraying that or moving that onto another, right? Uh, this is a counseling term. Uh, sometimes in, in uh, any kind of like counseling where a relationship has been broken, where it's a, whether it's a marriage or a friendship or whatever, there might be some scapegoating going on. I'm taking on my own angst and I'm pushing that onto this person that's close to me. And the, and the counselor will say, well, you're scapegoating the other person. So, scapegoating is when we take our own anger, frustration, and guilt, and we direct it onto another person. And while we may understand this on a personal level, we must also realize this happens in groups or in crowds. And I want you to hear me closely here. A group of people feeling frustration, anger, guilt, angst, maybe threat, must find an outlet for all of that negative energy, or they will churn in on themselves, So intuitively, what the crowd does is they find a scapegoat in order to protect themselves from imploding. And and we do this often without even knowing it, right? Groups of people, crowds, often those who are much like one another will have their own sort of angst or frustration or anger at something. They don't know what to do with that anger, so they point all that anger onto a victim. Scapegoating is a biblical term as well used to describe how Israelite people would place their sins onto a lamb, the scapegoat or a goat, a lamb or a goat, and they were called the scapegoat because they have kind of transferred their own sin onto that lamb, sent it out into the wilderness to be killed. So, But what we don't, we, we, we kind of get the sense of, of the sacrifice there, but what we don't often understand is sort of the corporate nature of this, that, that often crowds, to protect themselves from imploding on themselves will scapegoat another person or group of people. In other words, the crowd is afraid to face its own sin, so it projects that sin onto a person or onto a group of people that are most vulnerable and then demand that the scapegoat bear their own sin. Uh, I know this is, I know this is uh, really abstract, so let me, let me give you an example, and it's actually a quote from a book, because I thought I can't put it any better than that. Uh, so uh, here it is, here's the quote from the book, should be up on the screen as well, uh, this quote. Are we gonna have that? Are we gonna have this quote from the screen? There we go. Okay, so here's how scapegoating happens in the adolescent playground level. Boys at play and girls in their own way generate a lot of competition Who is the strongest? Who's the fastest? Who's the toughest? And the awareness of competition creates a certain amount of tension and anxiety among the children. But the playground crowd knows what to do with it. A scapegoat is chosen. Usually someone who is different, weaker, or less able to retaliate. Maybe it's the overweight kid, the weak kid, the quote, sissy kid, the kid without friends. The unfortunate child becomes the target, the victim, the sacrifice, the scapegoat. The selected scapegoat is then mocked, ridiculed, and picked on. He's chosen for this abuse because the crowd has unconsciously agreed that he will be the target of their own anxiety. He is innocent, of course, but he becomes the sacrifice. The danger the playground crowd poses to itself is channeled onto a single victim, the scapegoat. As the gang of boys releases its competitive anxiety onto the unfortunate scapegoat, there is a palpable sense of relief. Peace is restored to the playground. The members of the gang are relieved that that I'm not the one being picked on because it's him. The fat kid, the skinny kid, the weak kid, the ugly kid, the new kid, the different kid. The playground is now safe except for the scapegoat. Does this make sense? What happens is, by vilifying a scapegoat, the crowd creates a false sense of heroism, believing that they have worked for freedom and for justice of the group and saved themselves from a real threat, when, of course, the scapegoat was never a real threat in the first place. So what the crowd has done on Good Friday is has has taken all of their angst, all of their own sin, and projected it Onto the one man, Jesus Christ. Oh, come on, somebody. <laughs> this is so good, right? This is like so good because it totally reframes how we understand the cross. It isn't that God was so mad that he just killed Jesus out of, out of his own retributive justice. It was that Jesus absorbed or took on our sin in order to free us from it. And what we're going to learn is by way of forgiveness. It's so, so if you are interested in resources, there's an author named Brian Zond, uh, that's taken from chapter three of his book called A Farewell to Mars, absolutely brilliant chapter on scapegoating, like absolutely brilliant, we'll give you, it'll like, it'll bake your brain for a month, It'll, it'll be awesome, I promise, it'll be awesome. Not that baking your brain sounds awesome, but, like, baking your brain, like, in the best sort of way, right? Uh, so, so this is precisely what happens to Jesus, because Jesus becomes the scapegoat of the anxious crowd that is on the edge of riot. He is vilified and killed in the name of freedom and justice. And so, again, what does power look like? Does power look like uh, collusion between Caiaphas and Pilate, or does it look like the scapegoating of the crowd, or was power displayed by Jesus on Good Friday was real power, real strength displayed by Jesus who offered forgiveness to his executioners. You see, as Christians, we have a ready-made answer. It was Jesus who displayed the most power on Good Friday. But if we are really honest, do we see the cross as the very power of God. Do we see the cross as the very power of God? because there are many in the christian world that would want to say yes the cross was important and yes the cross won our salvation but god still must actually deal with evil by means of other than co-suffering love and forgiveness and i suppose what folks mean is that the cross was sufficient for salvation but not sufficient for dealing with evil and that is that the cross accomplishes god's salvation but does not accomplish god's justice and what i'm encouraging us to consider what i'm inviting us to consider this morning is that god's justice has been dealt with, his way of dealing with and defeating evil is by way of his love and forgiveness that is displayed on the cross. Amen? That's what I'm inviting us to consider, is that the cross is powerful enough to, yes, accomplish God's salvation for us, but also to accomplish God's justice and defeat over evil that we not rob the cross of any power, but we recognize all that's happening that, that God is doing in Christ in his own death and resurrection. And so I'm encouraging us to see that God does not defeat evil by perpetrating evil himself and then just calling it good because he's God. What I'm inviting us to consider today is that the cycle of evil and violence is ended in Christ on the cross through the power of suffering love and radical forgiveness. That's what I'm inviting us to consider. I'm encouraging us to consider that God does not defeat evil by perpetrating evil himself and then calling it good simply because he's God, but rather that he defeats the cycle of evil and violence through the power of suffering love and radical forgiveness. That is to say that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are sufficient for both God's salvation and God's justice. There's a guy named um, Miroslav Volf. <laughs> that is an awesome name, right? Can we just like take a break and say, wow, great job, mom and dad, you know? Like, okay, Miroslav Wolf. He said this, he said, to triumph fully, and this should be on the screen as well, to triumph fully, evil needs two victories, not one. The first victory happens when an evil deed is perpetrated. The second victory, when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. And so, What I wanna say to you this morning and what I wanna help us realize is that forgiveness robs evil of its second victory. That forgiveness robs evil of its second victory, thereby robbing it of its life. Are you with me? This 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 changes everything in how we understand the cross, the nature of God, what God is up to in the world. It reframes everything. And so the goal of restorative justice is reconciliation. And this means that God's justice, and this is how I want to land the plane for the series. This means that God's justice is more concerned with the restoration of relationship than with everyone getting what they deserve. Or even with being fair. Like God's justice isn't fair. If it were fair, you and I couldn't be in relationship with God. God's justice is about the restoration of a relationship, not with doling out what everyone deserves. And so while we may fear that forgiveness is giving up strength or power, what I want to encourage us to consider this morning is that forgiveness is actually the greatest kind of strength and the most authentic kind of Power. It is the very means by which God's justice is brought about. Forgiveness is the very means by which God's justice is brought about. Another way of saying that is God's justice deals with evil but does so by way of love and forgiveness. Uh, One more quote, this time from a guy named N.T. Wright. And I've quoted this book in every week of this series, and I want to just commend it to you again. The book is called Evil and the Justice of God. It talks about the problem of evil, uh, kind of false solutions to the problem of evil, uh, and then how, what God's justice looks like in the face of evil. Uh, and this is what he has to say. He says, When we understand forgiveness flowing from the work of Jesus and the Spirit, as the strange and powerful thing it really is, we begin to realize that God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others is the knife that cuts the rope by which sin, anger, fear, recrimination, and death are still attached to us. Evil will have nothing to say at last because the victory of the cross will be fully implemented. I believe this to be good news. The good news of Jesus Christ is that God has been made flesh in Jesus and seeing the predicament of evil and the cycles of evil and violence that we've been caught in generation after generation after generation, God sent His Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but by, that the world might be saved through Him that the power of evil was defeated on the cross through suffering love and radical forgiveness. And that's good news for everybody because it brings, it brings mishpat to all of us. And it also serves as an invitation that we might then go and embody and act and advocate for the mishpat of others. I mentioned Renee's hope earlier, and I want to close with a story about Renee's hope and how it began. I've told this story before, but I feel like it's fitting. The reason we call a compassionate ministry to the homeless Renee's Hope is because many years ago, Uh, our impact director at the time was in Old Town and conversing uh, with some folks who are in a season of homelessness. And they shared a very basic conversation, but with some laughter and um, getting to know one another. And after after the end of the conversation, uh, this homeless woman looked at our impact director and said, thank you. Thank you for paying attention to me, for recognizing that I'm here for offering laughter and conversation. She said, I spend my entire day watching people glance to the side, refusing to make eye contact, ignoring me, pretending like I'm not there, pretending like they haven't seen me. Your simple act of conversation has made me feel human again. And so part of our goal with Renee's hope is not just to make a warm meal and then serve it to those who are homeless, but part of the Part of the goal of Renee's hope is to share a table, to share conversation, to share laughter as a way of recognizing the image of God in each one who is in a season of homelessness. Maybe it was circumstances that brought them there. Maybe it was choices that they made. I don't think it's our role to determine that, our role to judge that. It's not our role to treat differently based on our assessment of the situation. Our role is to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God by recognizing the image of God in each one. And so we do our best to do that. We don't do it perfectly, but we want to do it, and we want to press into it and lean into it. And so that's what Renee's Hope is all about. Is it's trying to bring Mishpat to those who find themselves homeless. I hope that over the last three weeks we've come to see and to know and to understand the biblical vision of justice. But I also also hope that we've been challenged uh, in new ways, in new directions. to to maybe see the good news differently, uh, to to maybe understand the full depth of what God is is doing, uh, both in Christ on the cross and and in the world. So I invite you to consider these ideas. And uh, one thing about being part of our church is you you don't have to agree with everything. (laughs) We want to have varying ideas and perspectives because I think that makes us all stronger. But I invite you to consider these things. Let's say a word of prayer and then I'll lead us to communion and and share some instructions. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your goodness to us, for your presence that is with us, for the ways in which you love us. Thank you, God, for your justice. Uh, May we not fear your justice, but may we recognize, God, that your justice comes by way of love and forgiveness and that each one of us having called upon your name in faith, have received that forgiveness. And your love flows through all of creation. Your love falls like the rain, like the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Your love, God, has no discretion. You love freely, and for that, God, we give you thanks. Help us to reflect this in the world. Help us, Lord, to live faithfully as the people of God. We give you thanks and praise today. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.